All right. Um, do we have any questions before we start into new sutras? It's about the evolution of the soul, the, the jiva. Evolution of the jiva. Okay, yes. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, it, assuming you know, taking apart the side, the part that says you know they were all part of God and all that. Just looking leaving at, aside the part I want that we're all part of put God. All that aside. Okay, <laughs> just, let's just leave that I want, aside. I want to look as concretely as we possibly can at this world of spirit. Okay, <laughs> and say, is there in fact a beginning of that individual jiva? Does you know we talk about the evolution of that jiva? Does it actually have a beginning? Well, everything is. We are guessing and deducing now, self-evidently. We are not speaking from realization. I don't think I really needed to say that, but just in case I do. Um, Master speaks of days and nights of Brahma. And everything is, is manifested from spirit. So it's like when the gas is underneath and you haven't opened the jet, the gas is still all there and it hasn't divided itself up into separate jets. So at the point when you open the the valve, the gas comes out and then you ignite it and you can see it. But it was always there, it just wasn't expressed in that particular form. So that's the day of Brahma when everything is brought into manifestation and the night of Brahma when it's brought back. And if you're not self-realized when the day is over, you get drawn back and then you're re-manifested at whatever level of realization you have. So if everything is a manifestation of the infinite and there is no other than Satchitananda, there really is no beginning to that reality because there's no beginning, no end, there's no infinity. Beginning and end is about time and movement. But when does your individuality start? Master says, I mean, I think it starts at the level of the atom, I presume, but Master said he remembers back to being a diamond that that's only talking about his conscious awareness. Prior to being a diamond, he must have been some something somewhere. So when does the individuality begin? Hmm. Each I don't... Each atom is dowered with individuality. That's what I was going to say. Each atom, Master said, is dowered with individuality. So do we grow from an atom? One atom, and then we have two together, and then we have three? I don't know. I asked Swami that question once about... If Master was a diamond, how do you get out of being a diamond? And how long does it take? And what do you do afterwards? And where, is a redwood tree more advanced than a diamond? Those are the questions he said were about the dumbest questions he'd ever heard. And then in his way, you know, because what difference would it make? And then in his way, he answered it by saying, compared to eternity, all time is, is a, a, just a, a blink of an eye. So when would we begin? I think... We never, we never didn't exist. When did we differentiate ourselves and lose track of our realization? Presumably when, we're, when creation begins. But, you know, mechanically? Way beyond me. What is the reason you're asking, just out of curiosity? Well, just because when we talk about the um, evolution of the soul as if things are changing... You know, the soul starts at one point, or I mean, if it does, or it does, or well, it doesn't that's, start. That's but wrong. it's can, wrong vocabulary to say that the soul evolves. When I say, but we're talking, but no, what something we're really, evolves, but, and that's part of the confusion. No, nothing evolves. Awareness increases 
And when awareness increases, you merely become aware of what was always there. Nothing has changed except one's conscious perception of reality. Reality itself has always been exactly the same. So where Swami says we're as old as God himself because whatever is is a manifestation of all that is and it was always there because there's no, there's no time in that reality. It's just Satchitananda, ever existing, ever conscious, ever new bliss. That's our true nature. At some point we became convinced that that wasn't our true nature and then we go through this long cosmic drama to recover smriti, what we have forgotten. So nothing evolves. It's merely that awareness, we go from unawareness to greater and greater awareness, but reality itself has always been the same. We've just been um, denying it. So the, the soul doesn't evolve. We're not less God and then become more God. But the yeah. consciousness then changes. It, consciousness expands. Expand. I think uh, that's why the word awareness is better. Consciousness, like we talked last week, consciousness itself, there's no comparison point. Awareness or realization. Awareness is the word I like the best because we can kind of grasp that. If we're not aware of something, that has nothing to do with its reality. It just means that we're not aware of it. Oh, I didn't know that. I wasn't aware that you felt that way. I wasn't aware that was an option to me. I wasn't aware that, you know, it was there. I wasn't aware that I was ill. I wasn't aware that I was being rude. That implies that it was always there. I just didn't know it. And so there's no evolution in that. There's just an increase in awareness of what is. So Satchitananda is everything. We are always a part of it, never separated. Somewhere along the, the line, we lost the awareness of that. Our awareness shrank presumably when we were sent out. And then you get to, why did he do it? And then we're all stuck again. The answer to that is Kriya, because then you change your consciousness, you change your level of awareness, and you realize that he never did. So then our awareness develops and grows to the point that we never lose it again? Is that yeah, Well, that's what I'm, self-realization okay, is. Okay, so at that point we never lose it, but there was a point way in the beginning where we would, ha- one with God, and you would have that awareness and then be flung out and you well, forget in, it or lose in somehow, it. Well, some kind of theory here, and this is where it gets very confusing. We weren't fully aware of our oneness with the infinite. It was a fact, but it wasn't like we knew it and lost it. It's like we hadn't grown to the point yet where we could cognize it. Our self-awareness had not evolved to the point where we could cognize it. Um, This is this paragraph in the uh, Festival of Light, which I always, you know, every time I read it, I kind of think. um, Passage through dim corridors of waking. Um, It talks about creation, snowy waste, etc., had but this for its design, the birth of life, and with life's birth, the dawn of self-awareness, passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness to emerge at last into infinite light, into perfect joy. But that phrase, and with life's birth, the dawn of self-awareness, passage through dim corridors of waking consciousness to emerge at last into infinite awareness. It's a poetic statement. The forming of stars and moons and planets, of galaxies revolving on the tides of space, of drifting continents, upheaving mountains, 
snowy wastes and dark silent ocean deeps had but this for its design, the birth of life, and with life's birth, the dawn of self-awareness. Now, that's poetry, but he's hinting at it. So somehow, everything is Satchitananda, and somehow our little spark of Satchitananda gets distracted from its true reality. That's the why did he do it. But then when we realize why he did it, we realize he never did it. Because <laughs> even though we experience being separated, we never were. I wrote this out in the letter of this book, which I need about two days to finish, but I can't seem to find two days to finish it. Um, if you think a friend betrayed you, and you become extremely angry and upset, even in a state of despair because he betrayed you, then you find out that he never actually betrayed you, but you misunderstood. Nonetheless, your misery was real to you, but in fact you find out it was causeless misery because there never was any offense to be miserable over. Is it his fault that you got miserable? You know, were you ever really miserable and that there was nothing that ever really caused your misery? Was it your fault that you misunderstood? Or did it even happen? And that's kind of the position we're in when we ask these sort of defiant questions about why God did it, when it's only our false belief that anything was done to us. And when we wake, wake up sufficiently, we realize that we were never separated. We just thought we were. You can still. I'm not as, as much uh, in darkness, I guess, <laughs> about the why. The why seems clear and evident, but it's just that, you know, the idea the of we were always, well, that we were always part of God, but you've really explained it clearly that it's this awakening it's and awake. that we, were never, we weren't really clearly awake in the beginning. No, people have the idea that we were com- like in complete and perfect bliss, and then somehow or another he took that bliss away from us, and we had to struggle. And then now we get to come back. Somehow or another, there's this drama of creation where we just keep being... But, but once you finish, then this is the confusion. Every atom is dowered with individuality. There's, there's a spark of individuality, which is really you. And you only go through it once. That's what uh, someone asked Master. You know, if when the day... A Brahma ends and the night is withdrawn. Does everybody just have to start over? Meaning, you know, it's just we, we, we just make it all the way to the top and then whoosh, we're sucked right back down again. No. Once you, you, even if you're still wandering in delusion when this thing is over, I don't know how, you know, your mind is, but whatever, you're, you're pulled back into the night of Brahma at whatever level of awareness you were when it, and you come forward at that point and then you continue. How many days and nights of Brahma does it take? I mean, it's a little scary, but it can take more than one. Probably from there and there, you really don't know anything about time. Okay. Well, it's always now. We don't really know anything about time now. We just think we do. I mean, isn't it weird? It's only now. I've, I'm talking to... A, I, I, there was a picture posted on the Internet that was taken in the late 70s of all the people who were then in the monastery. It's been passed around on Facebook, and everybody just thinks it's so adorable because there's all these people of uh, my uh, chronological time, except we weren't then. We were in our, like, 20s for the most part. 
And people say, oh, I, I could hardly recognize you. I could hardly recognize this one. Well, I could recognize all of them because I sat there with them and looked at them. That's what they look like to me. I mean, they look different now, but that, I saw them with my own eyes and it just doesn't seem at, at all odd. But there's this impression that everyone has changed. But have they? You see how confusing it all is? Yeah, because time just, you can tell just from your own experience that time is not really there. I mean, every person virtually of my age is astonished to be of my age. And what amuses me endlessly, meaning that I remember being younger. I remember being a child. I, I mean, there was this baby visiting us just to, just to entertain you. Five and a half months, he's just begun to learn to crawl, which is apparently an enormous engineering feat for a child, which I didn't quite get. And he's a big, beefy lad, so he had, was on his tummy... And he managed to, he was just trying to sort of work with the hindquarters a little bit. He had, his arms were just still completely helpless, but he was working with the hindquarters a little. He couldn't quite get any traction, but he realized if he planted his face flat in the rug, if he just did a face plant like that, he'd get his little tush in the air and then get his knees under it, and his little feet were wiggling there. But then, of course, he couldn't get anywhere because he had this face plant that was just holding him. God Almighty, just watching the poor thing, you know, and... We were just laughing, and mother, mother's attitude was, he'll figure it out, and let him just, you know, struggle until he figures it. But good grief, how many times, how many times, how many times? I think there was a relevant point there, but I've lost it. Oh, the time. And just thinking about that, my earliest memory, I had a pink and white teddy bear that I believe was close to the same size I was, and it wasn't a big teddy bear. It had a plastic nose, and uh, my, it was my comfort toy. And when I would go to sleep, I'd put the plastic nose in my mouth and I would chew on it. And I can smell it, and I can taste it, and I can feel it. How small was I? You know, but it's as it's much a memory as what I had for breakfast and equally disappeared, but equally part of my reality. I don't have a lot of, I don't have any other memories of being that small, but I, that one is right there. And I, I can still see that teddy bear. If you brought teddy bears in, I'd know which one it was, you know. That's, you know, what's the difference? Hmm. Anything else? Yeah. My friend, when uh, Daryl Van Atta had his first son, the concept of reincarnation became so vivid to him when he saw that, I mean, much as he loved the child, that poor, helpless babe, he was having to change his diapers and do everything for him, and he said... He started meditating. He didn't miss his kriyas. Most new parents, you know, get distracted from meditation. Not him. <laughs> he said he did his kriyas every night, every morning, every night, you know, because there it was. This is the consequence of inattention to your spiritual life. It's a price we don't want to pay. <laughs> okay, ready? So we are now into one twenty-seven. The expression of Ishwara is the hidden sound of Om. Swami starts by commenting that um, several of the translations have called the sound of Om mystic. He says, I do not believe Patanjali would have used that. The word pranava used here means the cosmic sound. It is not mystic or mysterious, and certainly not for those who are able to hear it. I love Swamiji's way of saying it. But it is hidden from our physical ears. So let me just sort of stay with that for a moment. It's, you know, the word mystic and the word mysterious, people often use those. I mean, even 
There's places called mystery schools and so on like that. And one of the um, really important sort of attitudes that Swamiji brings to all of his writing is, is just to take away that idea that there's some sort of um, gap, some sort of insurmountable gap of, of, of non-reason that we have to get over. And he makes a strong distinction between it simply not being accessible to our physical ears, meaning it's not a part of our uh, external perception of reality, and the fact that somehow it's either difficult or strange to us. I mean, the word mystic is a... a, a, We don't think of it always as being associated with mystery or mist, but he's saying that people would just throw that word in he thinks translators just threw that word in without actually stopping to see what the implications are. All of these um, small aberrations that scholars and translators and theologians don't, see, don't think they matter. What difference is it called if you, if you call it the mystic sound? It's the internal sound. I'll call it the mystic sound. Not realizing that that begins to set up this separation in our minds between ourselves and these realities. And in this way, sort of inch by inch, we suddenly find ourselves very far away from anything we really wanted to do. I sometimes laugh. um, Because I wasn't raised Catholic, I can have a kind of detached amusement by it because I was never inculcated with it. So I sometimes um, sort of see what happens. Sort of see what happens when... uh, the, uh, when the theologians start trying to answer more questions than they actually know the answers to. And then they start making statements and then they have to give answers. Well, if you have to be baptized to be saved, what happens if you're not baptized? Well, what if it's before the age of reason, like you happen to be a baby and you happen to not be baptized and then you happen to die and you can't really do anything about it? And then pretty soon you have concepts like limbo. And these are not revelations. These are our, our theological efforts once they have painted themselves in a corner to try to get out of that. Um, I understand that babies don't go to limbo anymore because somehow unbaptized babies, because some theologian realized it was just too barbaric a custom. As the age rose, nobody wanted to think of babies being stuck in limbo. So in some ridiculous discussion we were having, amused discussion, a little irreverent discussion, what happened to all the babies that were stuck in limbo? And Nirmoha suggested that they were given to the Hindus to reincarnate. <laughs> given to the Hindus to reincarnate. <laughs> Which, uh, <clears throat> anyway, moving right along. But it actually starts with words like mystic. When I was um, writing the working on the website that we wrote when we were in litigation with SRF and we were trying to dismantle some of their false claims um, to um, absolute authority. And I had the, what I think at that time was the 16th edition of the Autobiography of the Yogi, which had an enormous number of endnotes. And one of those endnotes that had been put in by the publisher, uh, which of course was SRF, said that, let me just think how this is, that the blessings of the gurus will always be there for members of SRF in good standing. I mean, this was just written by some clerk, you know. I mean, I write end notes. I could have done it. So I started 
I don't know how much of this sarcasm I actually put on the, the website, but I had a lot of fun playing it out. Okay, so who decides that they're in good standing? And, like, what about the idea that you had previous relationships with these gurus? So he, the gurus just ignore you until you actually sign up? Do you become a member at the time you mail it in? Or, like, if karma hits you before it's actually arrived? And how, what determines whether you're still in good standing or not? And if they bless you accidentally, do they take it back? I mean... And then you end up with babies in limbo. You see just how you end up there because once you declare that you have authority over things you have no authority over, then you have to just keep going and you end up in a terrible mess. And that's why Swami takes exception even with little things like the word mystic. Let's not confuse the issue. Yes, you cannot hear it with your physical ears, but there's nothing even slightly mysterious about it, especially not for those who hear it. I remember when this yogi... Um, Bhakswala Baba, he was called, that yogi in the, up above Badrinath who told us that he left his body all winter long when his cabin was buried in snow and he went and lived with Babaji in the Himalayas during those months. And people said he did not leave his cabin. He was there and I mean, he was way in the mountains so there was feet of snow over his cabin and he put his body into this big tin box that was right there in his cabin. That's why they called him Bakswala. He was the box Swami, the box Baba. And uh, afterwards, Swami Kriyananda, who hadn't met him, sort of asked me what my impressions were. And I remember saying to him, in, overall, he'd made a positive impression on me, although even at the time, I had to say, it was hard for me to separate the effect of the Swami and the effect of the setting. We were, we'd gone about a thousand or two thousand feet above Badrinath. We were in some little valley with the tall Himalayas, and he had this little cottage that was, you know, just big enough for him to live in and for us to crowd into, and we're looking out this window at the Himalayas, and I was, I was gone for a lot of reasons. His company was one of them, perhaps, but there were a lot of reasons why I was having the experience I was having. And I said to Swamiji about it, I said, well, he, he spoke so casually about going to be with Babaji, you know, by, of that situation and just going to be with Babaji. And he made it just seem like it was just so ordinary to do that. And Swami said, well, by the time you're doing it, it is. Which I just thought was such a simple answer. By the time you're doing it, it's what you're doing. It's not unusual to you. And when I think about it, some people think the life that we live is unusual. And it doesn't seem at all unusual to me. It seems like the most obvious thing in the world to, to have done. I met Swami Kriyananda. I turned my back on everything else. And I went to live with him, you know, at a very young age. Went to live in the community where he could guide me. What else should I have done? Doesn't didn't seem at all out of the ordinary to me. Seemed very fortunate. I mean, out of the ordinary in the sense that, out of you know all the possible choices in the world, I got to have that one. But nonetheless, it's just who we are. And Swamiji wants us to have that very close relationship. So the sound of Ishwar is the sound of Om. Okay, that'll come to me. That's my reality. I can live with that. It's not humility to, to deny ourselves the potential. So just that little sentence. So he talks about, is there any question or thoughts about any of that? Yes, Tom. What you just said, um, how you, it just becomes normal and that's who you are and seems perfectly normal to you, but this person over there, you might seem like you're off the moon or something. I was 
been wondering recently just about that very point. What am I supposed to, well, no. What's a good place to stand when I am interacting with the world outside of Ananda and um, it doesn't behave the way I think it should? What kind of relationship do I want to have with the world that I have with to... With Maya or with people or what? Well, what both, are you yeah. Well, people, let's just go with people. You know, people. Uh, Sita... Just, just, just relax and let them be who they are? See, oh, of course. Sita, uh, I was with Sita recently and she had a marvelous phrase. She said, you just don't have to take a position. She said, I love that. You know, so people have their realities. You don't have to take a position in relation to that. So circumstances come to you that weren't what you planned. You don't have to take a position. Just let it be. Of course, actually, the answer is love God. You love God all the time. You're standing in front of whoever you are, and you love God. And if you love God, you just love God, and then everything follows naturally from that. Right. I, I, here's the question. I noticed myself spending a lot of energy trying to get, trying to like have an opinion or feeling like I had to take a position. So I just don't have to take a position. Good. Not unless you're guided by Divine Mother to do so. That's why if you just love God, you'll know what to do. Very, very rarely, even among your own family, do people really want to know what you think? Yeah. I mean, we're always dishing out our opinions to an extremely disinterested world. <laughs> yeah. They're more interested in themselves. Everybody is. Except for one small exception, the entire world is made up of others. <laughs> and that's an insignificant exception. Just let there be... In fact, that's what he says here later on. It's a very important point. He says... Um, the OM technique is one of the best ways to overcome ego consciousness. This is because the best way to overcome ego consciousness, which is the main obstacle to spiritual enlightenment, ego, is to expand one's consciousness beyond the confines of the body. This is accomplished by listening to and merging into the OM. I'll just skip to that since I went there. We're always trying to sort of Imagine that we get rid of the ego by pushing on it, which tends to make us extremely self-involved or frightened, you know, or anxious about ourselves all the time. And the easiest way to spiritual enlightenment is to overcome it by just making it a very small part of your reality. So when you're just living, in, moving your body and living in it, but it's a very small part of your reality. And whether that reality is impersonally the vibrations of the whole universe going on around you, or whether you are just as readily in someone else's reality as you are in your own, because your thought is, how can I serve you? Then you're, you're moving out of that ego consciousness. So, you know, there's no really Ananda world, the outside world. I mean, just everything is a vibration, and some of those vibrations are more spiritually uplifting than others and one ought to move as much as possible in spiritually uplifting vibrations and when one is compelled by circumstances or karma to be places where the vibrations are not uplifting then you have to magnet you have to generate it yourself but just you even generate it yourself not by 
identifying with your own issue, but by feeling or hearing, he's talking here about listening to the Om, that everywhere you are, it's equally present because you carry it within yourself. I'm, I'm, I mentioned the, a few weeks ago when we bought the, went and bought the car, and I talked about it at Sunday service, about the hours we had to spend in that car dealership. I was, I was so uplifted through that whole experience, there was nothing inherently uplifting about it. But it was almost by its, the very extreme nature of the situation, I just took no position. And I didn't have that phrase at the time, but I just surrendered to whatever was going on around me, experiencing it from inside my own reality, not experiencing it from theirs, but just in the, in the comfort of the relaxation of this going to take all afternoon, I sort of actually just sort of fell into something that even now when I think about buying that car, I, I remember it as a sort of spiritual experience. But it wasn't anything to do with it. It was, it was because of the extreme opposite nature of it. So there was nothing to relate to except my own inner reality. I mean, actually, I'm articulating that more than I thought of it at the time. You know, the people watching the football game and the because there was this big television in one, one of the waiting spaces and everybody cheering when San Francisco did well, which I'm always happy they do because everybody's in a good mood, you know. It just makes... The whole, I mean, when I was all the way in India for the Super Bowl, and in order to see the Super Bowl in India, they had to get up at like 3 in the morning. And so somebody got it hooked up to the Internet, and at 3 in the morning the whole crowd was out there uh, of the people who were interested, Americans mostly, watching. And like about 7 it was still going on, which was a decent hour for me. And I wandered in, and this, that year, which was just this past year, 2013, it was very exciting, and it was our team, our San Francisco team. And I decided I would watch, but I was saying to, jokingly to people there, listen, when we win, our whole area is happy. It makes everybody happy, so I'm all for it. And, you know, just watching these realities that, who cares? But nonetheless, everything is a flow of energy. And just you even, just watching everybody be so excited about it, like, why take a position? Just be in your heart, be in God's presence at all times. That's not always easy, but this is what the Om is about. And this is where, when we practice this in the silence of our meditation, and you know, all of us on our path have been taught how to do this. He makes reference, you need to learn from a qualified person, but we've all learned from a qualified person how we actually really just move into that other reality. Om being one of the easier um, you know, ways, at least you hear something of it, whether you're hearing the whole of it and it's really taking over your whole body and, or not. Nonetheless, it, it's directional. It, it trains your consciousness to sort of lean into the infinite instead of leaning back into the ego. So, you know, whenever we find ourselves in an environment that we don't want to mix with, which, of course, we all do. If you, if you live in an ashram like Ananda Village where there's 900 acres and you can have home, job, and church in one place, you can actually go long periods of time without ever leaving that atmosphere, which is why people go and live there. Highly recommended. A very, very valid way of life. When I first moved to Ananda Village from 4th and Geary in San Francisco, which, for anybody who knows the city, that's a pretty darn busy corner, 
apartment was quiet, but it was still on that corner, to the Ananda Meditation Retreat. It was like, you know, in 24 hours, from 4th and Geary to the Ananda Meditation Retreat, not just Ananda Village, but the Meditation Retreat, in a tent. Um, it was a big change. And I hardly left for like six months. Maybe I must have gone into town sometimes because there was no other way to do laundry. But still, I just lived in that property and I, I really learned how much we protect ourselves from the environment all the time. But that immersion um, sort of gave me a kind of inner resonance that became easier to find, less dependent on environment. That's why you go live in ashrams. It's a, it's a very exceedingly valid way of life. It's just easier to hold your center. By contrast, the life that we've chosen that's been assigned to us, whether indefinitely or not, seemingly for me it's indefinite, is the missionary station. And although people hardly call this a missionary station because you tend to think of some struggling country, undeveloped country, it's a missionary station because we're living among, with all due respect, the heathen. I am going to say it, the heathen, the unbelievers, the Gentiles. You know, you say it from whatever point of view is your point of view. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm making fun, but you understand. It's not, we're not living, we, we know we're off our property and in just into people's way of doing things. Ananda, uh, Palo Alto is a great assignment. This is, I'll just, since we're chatting here. Ananda Palo Alto. Palo Alto. This is our description once we really got to know this place. Highly cultured, highly educated, highly refined, extremely, you know, broad-minded, sophisticated, thinking, creative, dynamic, generous-hearted people making one last effort to find satisfaction from the material plane. They've got everything lined up. Everything is done really, really well. And so if it's possible to find satisfaction from the material plane, this one is going to work, right? That's why it's a great place for us, because they've really pushed it to the limit. So there's there's no place to go from here except self-realization, really, because it's not crass materialism. It's very, very refined materialism, very materialistic, but very refined. So there's no place to go from here except to God. That's That's why Swami sent us here. Ananda in the first place, David and Asha later on, because he said, this teaching is ideal for that place. And we want people, when they start looking spiritually, to think of Master. It's ideal. Now, let me just trace all that back to what I was wanting to say. When we meditate and get in the habit of leaning into the infinite, it's just, I mean, that's just a way of putting it. What I was starting to say is when we feel our equanimity and our upliftment threatened, by circumstances beyond our control, whatever they might be, we have two ways of dealing with that. One is to barricade ourselves within ourselves and to become sort of tight and closed against it. You know, I won't take any of this in. Um, The other way is to push outward from our own center and create such a positive outflow of energy that, in fact, the vibrations around us are neutralized. And our experience becomes the experience of the vibrations that are emanating from us. This is the story Swami told about having to go to North Beach in San Francisco, which was a nightclub district and not even, an, uh, not even a highly cultured and refined nightclub district. And he had to go meet someone there on a Saturday night. 
And uh, there was, he said, usually he likes to take a spiritual bodyguard with him, which is to say another friend who's in tune with you so you can keep your vibrations strong together. But he had, for, for one reason or another, he had to go by himself. And he said he just started chanting, Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram. And he said he just walked through these streets where the nightclub uh, people were standing at the door just trying to pull him in like this. You know, the, the barkers or whatever you would call them, trying to pull him in. And he said he could just feel like the tentacles of worldliness. Just, but he, they just slid right off him because his vibration was Sri Ram, J Ram, J J Ram. And again, he described just being so uplifted. It was like he was in a holy pilgrimage spot, even though he was perfectly aware of where he was, because he was. And the Om vibration, you see, is always there. It's always, everything is a vibration of energy. This whole creation exists because um, the, the, how does he put it right here? Uh, let me say it. He says, the storm of Maya the waves, vibrations on the vast ocean, um, those waves of Om, of consciousness, vibrations on the vast ocean produced everything in outward existence. Science declares that matter itself is only a vibration of energy. The ancient seers declared that energy is a vibration of thoughts, and thoughts are actually vibrations of consciousness, and all of it can be accessed through the Om. So whenever anything in our life disturbs us, if we can lean into the Om, if we can go into the Om, and that's why we practice. Because even if in the midst of noise and so on, we're not able to hear it as clearly and as deeply as we might in the quiet of our meditation room when we're practicing as we have been taught, nonetheless it lingers as a memory. And, and in a sense you can feel the sound of Om. You can just feel that, that shifting vibration of consciousness. And then Swami goes on to talk about, um, well, he talks about it later, but he talks about how miraculously you'll be protected. This is in, when we get to 129. Miraculously it will seem. And then he talks about the atom bombs dropping on the Japanese cities and certain two religious communities being spared. Um, Yesterday, Helen was talking about Maximilian Kolb. Kolb? The saint of Auschwitz. And she told a story about earlier in his life, which I didn't know, which was when he had been sent to Japan with his religious order um, to do some kind of missionary work. And their, their monastery was located in a certain place, but they needed more space or they needed to build, build another one. And he was in a position to make the decision, and he absolutely insisted that the monastery had to be built on the other side of this hill. And everyone resisted him. It it was impractical. It was too far away. Um, It just wasn't the district they should be in. But he absolutely insisted, and as a result, it was built there. And whatever, it was either Hiroshima or Nagasaki, wherever it was, because of that, the presence of the mountain, the devastation was on one side of the mountain, and they were and they were not. And as a consequence, they were of enormous value to help with what had happened. But how did he know? I'm, I'm certain he, well, maybe he did have a vision, but just as likely he just knew that that was the place where it had to be built. But what I love that Swampy says, consciousness is the cause of everything, and the motive force 
behind every mechanism, he said. Consciousness changes everything. There is nothing to be astonished about in such protection, is how he put it. And, and that's again where, even though these things are powerful, we don't want to think of them as mysterious. These are simply the forces in which we live. I know Master made the statement that, you know, karma is cause and effect, that this action causes that and that causes this, meaning our karma plays itself out. But then he said, for devotees it's different. That, that, that chain of karma is just broken. And the, the change in consciousness changes the mechanism. If, we're, if we don't have any divine awareness, then we're just subject to the waves of duality as we have set them in motion. But once we bring into the picture the possibility of changing consciousness, then the whole mechanism, so to speak, is different. Swamiji says, for devotees, you sort of put in the energy on, in this direction, but it, it, it comes in from behind you into the, from the other side because you're, you're engaged in a, in a more expanded web of interconnection than you are when your consciousness is less. And if we can, you see, if we can really grasp this, then in every situation, all we have to do is work on our consciousness. And so many conflicting forces come in. Um, and we, we only half do it, and then we prove that it's wrong. I remember a friend of mine, a woman friend of mine was, many, many years ago. She was caught between her financial insecurity and her desire to give her life to God. So she kept half giving her life to God to see if he would take care of her. (laughs) And of course, because she never did, he never did. I was talking to someone about this just today. You know, if you go through your life, you have to really give your life to God and really serve with devotion and absolute commitment, then you will activate a certain divine reality. If you only halfway do it and then keep wondering why it's not working, and it's, it's a very complicated cycle, and it's all about consciousness, the answer to every problem. That's why Lahiri said, all you have to do is do Kriya. And what we're saying here is all you have to do is stay in the Om. Um, Swamiji, are there any questions or comments about that before I go into a whole other aspect of this? Arthur, did you have something? That's all right. I was about to change directions anyway. Is there a relationship between Om and Divine Mother? The Om is considered to be the feminine force, and the Om is considered to be the Divine Mother because there's the power of spirit above creation, which is the masculine, I mean, outside of creation. Then there's the power of spirit within creation, which is considered to be the feminine, just as the father um, is necessary for the birth of the child, but the actual birth comes through the mother. And so the Om vibration is the way the unmanifested spirit becomes manifested. So Om is the divine mother. And in, um, in the Christian Bible, where they don't talk about divine mother, they get divine mother in through the Virgin Mary, but that's something different. Um, Christ calls it the comforter which is such a a beautiful way to put it because you see that's a reference to the feminine dimension of creation 
because what is the mother? The mother is the comforter. So Jesus says, you know, after I'm gone, I will send you the comforter. And on the day of Pentecost, they heard the sound of many rushing waters. The disciples heard it and were lifted into the spirit. They heard the own vibration. And they were comforted in their hour of loss because when they were in that vibration, they understood that they were not separated, whereas they thought they were separated. Then there's the children's joke. The child comes home from Sunday school and says to the mother, don't worry, mom, the quilt is coming. And the mother said, that's lovely, dear. And then after the child went to bed, called the Sunday school teacher, and the lesson was, be of good cheer, God will send the comforter. (laughs) So, but it's true. So yes, it is the feminine. Okay. Well, the Christ consciousness is the power of the spirit within creation. How do I explain Christ consciousness? Yes, those two are... Om Tat Sat. Yeah, but divine mother and Christ consciousness. The divine mother is the, is the Om vibration moving through creation. The Christ consciousness is the still presence of spirit within us. And by hearing the Om, it connects us to the reflection of the divine that is within us. We discover that that which is infinite is also within us. Does that is that clear enough? I often have trouble saying that. Yes. Let me just take the microphone so that the that's so the question appears on the recording. It makes it easier for me. Practicing the presence of God, I can see that as a blend of both of those. Practicing the presence of God is when is in whatever expression of the divine you can attune yourself to. That's when we come to the eight manifestations of God, of which the sound of Om is one, but the power of love, the power of wisdom, and so on. It's, I'm not probably not explaining that exactly, but practicing the presence of God is to practice any aspect of, any expression of divine consciousness that you can access. I find that the eight manifestations of God are the easiest way to understand how to practice the presence of God. Um, if, if you can practice the company of, a, of your ishtadeva, of your chosen for, form of worship, that's one way to practice it. The other is to be an instrument and a channel for that divine consciousness and sa- the, the vibration of sound, the highest form of which is the om. And, and to be practicing the presence of God is to be aware of the om, as I say, either to hear it or to feel it, but to feel that this whole world is a movement of consciousness and all of the little people the little phrase that's been working a lot for me lately is the soul's long journey when I see situations and people and things that I just can't I can't understand why people are responding the way they're responding I've found that the little mantra the soul's long journey just actually helps me enormously because all we're looking at is the soul's long journey All we're experiencing is the soul's long journey. See, this is the power of ritual. How many times in the festival of... of, For some reason, all my words are like coming out as like one word. How many times in the festival of light is that phrase, the soul's long journey? I've been part of putting forward that festival of light for 28 years maybe or something like that. Just a couple of days ago, that phrase just came out of my subconscious in a context where I really needed it 
in a way that I'd never really thought of it before. You know, so we, we don't always know what's happening with these um, repeated ideas. But they do, they go into us and then they become our friends. Like, as I say, in the hour of need, there it is handed to you. Um, so many, many things. Any thoughts or questions before we take a breath? Yes, let's pass the microphone back. You mentioned feeling Om. Um, That's the only way I can say it, because sometimes when you can't hear it, you kind of are aware of the fact of its existence. I don't mean feeling it like Swami describes, where it takes over your body. Oh, okay. My, my personal spiritual life is more about feeling than any other aspect, so I sort of feel things whether I see them or hear them or not. It's just I can sort of tell something is happening even though there's no audio or visual proof of it. I suppose that's intuition. I'm not really sure. But it's a feeling. It's a feeling that the Om is there. <laughs> it's not a very clear statement, but you get the point. Okay? Anything else? Let's take a short break before we shift over to Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. Any questions from the break? If not, we'll go on to... Did you have something, Arthur? Okay, I wanted to just talk about Om in terms of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva because it does seem like we shouldn't let that pass. We ought to talk about it for a couple of minutes. Um, The whole issue of the what people consider to be the Hindu gods and goddesses is really an extremely interesting and sophisticated way of understanding reality. I highly encourage you to read Purushottama, Joseph Selby's book. Joseph Selby and David Steinmetz, Vyasa and Purushottama, as we call them, wrote a book called The Yugas. And it's a very interesting book, and it goes, um, uh, it goes through a whole cycle of the yugas and talks about the times past and the times coming. Um, and you, you, it just, by the way, some people find that they, they, they sort of lose the thread a little bit, but stick with that book because it really brings things together. And one of the things it really talks about in an extraordinary way is the whole question of Hindu mythology, so to speak, where it came from, what it means, and what it's about. So first I'll say that because we can't touch it. Swami also has the Hindu way of awakening, which is also very, very good. Superb book. And there's a class series somewhere on the internet that I've given on that book, maybe even twice. Um, When we would go to India leading pilgrimage tours, which we did from 1987 till about 2007, so is that 20 years? Yeah, that's about 20 years. And the timing of when we would go would often coincide with the Durga Puja and the Kali Puja when we were in Calcutta. In fact, we'd often be in Calcutta during the time that Kali was being celebrated. Kali is not one of the three um, gods referred to here. Kali is the, fem- the, the image of the, di- of the Divine Mother in her, what people call her terrible aspect. Um, she's the consort of Shiva in, in this story. So she's the, dis- well, she's not exactly the destroyer. She's something completely different. She has this long, wild hair, and she wears a garland of skulls, and she has a red tongue, and she holds a sword, and she has her foot on the chest of her her husband, Shiva, like this. And she's very fierce-looking, and there's a tradition um, in these neighborhoods where uh, 
neighborhood groups get together and they'll make a, an altar to Mother Kali. And so every few blocks during that season, when you're going through the streets of Calcutta, you'll see these huge, beautiful um, statues and altars set up celebrating. And each one is trying to outdo the other in many different dimensions. And during our first um, visits to India, all of this was exceedingly exotic. We'd never really seen anything like it, not in this incarnation. And especially when we would be there in Calcutta during this particular season, and just one after another after another, we'd see these images of Kali. And it was not easy as Westerners to relate to something that uh, was so outside of our idea of what God should look like. And it was a little confusing. And I remember we were on a street once. We were walking from somewhere to somewhere. And we, were, we stopped, and somehow there was a, a lot of a crowd pressing. And um, as happens sometimes in a crowd, you know, you sort of gra- your position gradually shifts. And I was being pushed backwards a little bit. And unbeknownst to me, there was one of these big collie um, displays behind me, and I was in, engaged in the front. And so by the time I became aware that she was behind me, I was just practically on top of her. And I turned around, and basically there she was, like this. And they're big, they're not small. So I'm, I'm looking at the whole thing just all at once. And it somehow was such a shock. I, I spoke rather firmly to, to Divine Mother and said, basically, what is this? <laughs> just, I, you know, I demand an explanation and the thought that came to me is, well, life is like that sometimes, isn't it? And just that sort of, all that fierce energy, all that um, odd magnetism, all that power of the sword, the life and death represented by the skulls, and her other hand is held out as a, in, as a boon. She has a sword in one hand and she's giving a boon with the other. And it occurred to me very solidly in, in Purushottama, um, explains this beautifully in the Yuga's book, just beautifully, that some a, a great soul, some self-realized master probably, had a vision of that image. And that image communicated so many dimensions of reality that could not be explained in sheer linear words. Because images often communicate more than intellectual concepts. The, the joy symbol, that, as we call it, that curved symbol going up and coming back, swooping back down again, people say Swamiji designed that. He did not design it. He saw it, which is very, very different. He actually prayed to Master for some simple image that would communicate the spirit of Ananda. He said that it could also be used by artists in many different ways, And he prayed for that, and then in meditation he saw that image. And then, as he described it, he had to draw it, he said, almost 80 times before he was able to just draw with his pencil what he actually saw, the exact way that it shaped and so on. Ironically, you know, it got shifted for about 15 years until somebody discovered that we changed it, and then it went back to the original, which is what you see here. But because it says something... And for those of us who have worn it as jewelry, an amazing number of times people will say, what is that? That's so beautiful. And they'll just, they'll feel it communicates something. So I was looking at Kali 
And all of a sudden, with a little bit of intuition, I thought, well, that's a very valid expression of what life is like. It's powerful, it's uplifted, it's a blessing, it's a challenge, it's death at the same time that it's life, it's enormous amount of energy, and it's a mother all at the same time. Because it says it. So when we come back to Aum, and we talk about Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, we're not really talking about God somewhere that we have to worship. Swami makes the distinction between idols and ideals. Ideals are principles that we can understand. Idols are just statues. But the ideals are captured in an image or even personified through the personality and nature of these gods and goddesses. Excuse me, I'm going to sneeze. Swamiji said I should write a travel log called Places I Have Sneezed. It used to be a joke between us because whenever I would feel particularly inspired, I would sneeze. <laughs> we traveled together in spring in Europe, so I sneezed a lot all through Europe. And it used to be sometimes when I hadn't seen him in a while, and I'd sit down in a satsang and then I would sneeze, you know, without saying anything, he would look over and smile at me. <laughs> oh, it's comforting to see that you're feeling well. <laughs> But anyway, um, when we have Brahma and Vishnu and Shiva, we're trying to describe essentially the ongoing threefold nature of life. Om is the vibratory force that makes creation, but creation is not a fixed entity. See, in our own minds, we think creation, okay, that's it. But there's these three dimensions to the way this world of duality is always moving. Things are being manifested. That's the Brahma nature. And then things are sustained for a time. And they're sustained in a certain form. And then they begin to shift over into that dissolution that is the beginning of the next um, time that Brahma has his moment. So it's Brahma is the creator, Vishnu is the preserver, and Shiva is the, the destroyer. Better to say the one who dissolves things back. And so when we're in different aspects of our life, different personalities, different stages of our life, different ones of these ideals are actually what we ought to be relating to. I mean, sometimes people are inclined one way or another, and in fact, we really have, it's a, person, it's a personality test for the devotee sometimes. Am I a Brahma type? Am I a type that just really enjoys the creative process? But when it's time just to sort of maintain things and refine them, but just keep them going in a sustaining sort of way and that kind of steady, um, steady energy of the Vishnu. Is that, is that what I'm good at? Or am I the, the Shiva type, the one who can come in and make things change and bring new realities and end old issues and start something anew? You know? And everybody's different. I, I, I joke about, about it when people have to... Um, when people are like wanting to get rid of a lot of their possessions or to downsize or to give up an old aspect of their life and start a new, I rent myself out as a very good Shiva. And I have literally sat with a lot of people who are more Vishnu by nature. They just want to keep, keep on going, whatever is going, even after it has long since ended. And I come in in Shiva and I say, will you ever look at that again? Will you ever actually lose that again? 
use that again, if you never see those pictures of your grandfather's hometown, do you think it will actually matter? You know, and then I, I act like Shiva and we just, until we can just dissolve all that stuck energy and then we can move forward. So Om itself has all of those dimensions and we can draw upon it the dimension of Om that we need when we need it. If we really have to create something new, we, can, we, 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 we feel Om as Brahma when it's just our lot to have to just make something continue. I mean, you can see what type I am. To me, that's like, we just have to just make something continue. I was joking once with Michael Gornick, who um, had had a dramatic health crisis, and I was saying that his continuous dramatic health crises have trained a whole generation of people how to do healing prayers because he was always having one crisis or another, so we were always in there learning how to pray for him. And I was contrasting the drama of his life with the essential sameness of the life that David and I had had for a long time. And I said, it really doesn't get much of a response if we send an emergency email. David and Asha in Palo Alto are dying of boredom. Pray for them, (laughs) you know. But neither of us are really that good at being Vishnus. So we just, we can kind of Vishnu along for a while and then we're going to make some changes. We're either going to dissolve something or we're going to start something new because that's just the aspects of Om that we relate to. And there are other people who are just, you know, the, the, both either of those sides is not there for it, but just to be able to hold something in harmony, to keep it going in, a, in just that sort of even harmonious manner, that's, it's, it's all part of the divine. And then also we use these different aspects essentially to draw divine energy into what may be happening to us. Sometimes without our choosing it, we find ourselves, um, um, Shiva's taking an unwelcome interest in us, you might say. We're just that which we wanted to sustain is just not going to be sustained anymore. It's just the Om vibration has shifted into the Shiva mode. And what we thought we would always have, we're not going to have anymore. So we can either cling to that dimension of Om that we felt more comfortable with, um, the Vishnu side of it, or we can suddenly become Shivites and just say, all right, if this is what, what you're going to do, then this is what I'm going to do. And we, you know, do the Shiva chants and we look at the Shiva images. And it's a very extremely helpful way to um, draw to a focus the ideal attitude. And that's what those gods and goddesses are really about. They communicate. They communicate in the highest ages. They communicate on a superconscious level. level. In the lowest ages, they hold a remnant of a very high truth when the high truth itself is hard to perceive. So all people know about is Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva and all the different things they do and the way they live. And I was in a temple in, outside of Delhi, um, the temple in Chhatapur, which is now just this acres and acres of different shrines. And we were in this one round shrine there. And there were all these carvings on the wall, written very nicely done. And they were all different scenes of different um, well-known stories of, of the gods and goddesses or the life of Krishna or I don't remember precisely what it was. It seems to me it was quite varied around that temple. And I was just sitting in there with a couple of American friends and a group of uh, 
what you, would, what you would say, villagers. That's how you would describe them. People who were not from the urban area, but were, for, for, were from some rural area. Um, I, they were speaking a language I couldn't have... I, can't, I, don't, I don't know any languages anyway but English. But they were talking in a way that I'd never even heard before, what to speak of understood. And they were clearly not sophisticated or well-educated. I don't even know if they were literate, but it didn't matter. But they would look at those pictures... And they got so excited about what they saw. And then they were talking to each other about what they were seeing and they were pointing out all the different parts. And even without my understanding their language, it was quite clear the experience they were having. And it was so obvious to me suddenly what the purpose of all this is, is that it can be understood just by the pictures and the stories. And not everyone is inclined that way, but behind these images... There's an extremely sophisticated reality. And Swami talks about the three tones of Om, the beginning tone, the sustaining tone, and then the lower tone, and each of them corresponding to the creative process, the sustaining process, and the dissolving process. And if we, you know, when we're chanting Om like that, really put our, our commitment into that endless cycle. I mean, these are, there's so many ways... It's always a really good idea to practice when it's easier. You don't want to think about Shiva for the first time when everything you own has been destroyed and all your relationships are taken away from you. You don't want to sort of that, that have that be the first time it occurs to you that Shiva is an aspect of Om. You want to have been thinking about the fact that everything is created, everything goes on for a while, everything eventually dissolves and becomes something new again. So even just in a small way, just sort of playing that out all the time. People ask us about Ananda and how we'll get along now that Swami's not um, in the body anymore and, you know, what do we see as the future? And, well, Swamiji did about as much as a man can do to make Ananda um, capable of continuing. And even for many, many years, while he was still in the body for decades, really, he's been... Um, giving people the opportunity to stand on their own two feet and draw on their own tuition, always with his consciousness there, but that's the same as it is now. But sooner or later, everything dissolves. It's just the way of the world. And I think we've got a couple of good generations here. I think we'll certainly, we'll certainly outlast our own lifetime, and I think we'll last our, probably our grandkids, maybe our great-grandchildren, maybe even longer than that. We have no idea because it's Dwap, uh, Dwapar Yuga ascending. And we don't, we don't have any history. For we, our history is all that everything just gets worse, and then after that it gets worse still. Because that's all that we know in Kali Yuga, especially the life of Jesus, the life of Krishna. Everything just got worse and worse, in the sense that India is now entirely committed to rituals. Christianity is entirely committed to an institutional approach. But... This is self-realization. This is a new age. We don't know what's going to happen. But just, by the way, just because these thoughts were occurring to me recently, it occurred to me that we were, we've been going this way for a long time, but it's been really dramatically accelerated by Swamiji's um, departure from this plane, which is that Ananda has no geographic center. And I've sort of noticed that for a long time, but largely, also, it was because um, I was often where Swami was. And, and, but Swamiji was the geographic center. 
If he was at Ananda Village, that was the geographic center. If he was at Pune, that was the geographic center. Or Assisi, where he had his homes, that was the geographic center. But still there was this odd phenomenon. Wherever you were, if you were living in commitment to Ananda, it feels like the center of Ananda. And one doesn't feel that it's not happening. Because it is happening. Because if we're here and we're being devoted to Master, it's happening. But Swamiji's uh, departure from this planet just like made that point so much more dynamically clear because we're, and also because there's so many dynamic different realities of Ananda going on. But above all, it's because if the devotee is completely committed, wherever he is geographically, each one has a different character, each one serves a different role in relation to the whole or to the others, but it's center everywhere. And, and also that phrase, circumference nowhere. It's like, it's like because Swamiji has become infinite, it's like Ananda itself has no boundary all of a sudden. This was at least a feeling that I was having. There's just this sense I feel standing here that I cover the whole globe. And when I was in Delhi, which I was last year, and will be, I mean at the beginning of this year and will be again, you know, standing at the Delhi center, it was so clearly the center of Ananda. And being in Pune, it was the center. Being in Chennai, it was just like from wherever, wherever you are on a globe, you're everywhere. You're equally everywhere. And, and Ananda has become global. And of course, this coincides exactly with the, with the um, release of Finding Happiness, the movie. And it's really a, it's a marvelous feeling um, to, to capture that in your heart because it, it, at least the effect it's, it has on me is that I, I feel myself connected there. I, I, don't, I don't feel geographically identified. It's just like there's this feeling of the energy going in all directions. And it's being manifested by the way people are traveling and moving and here, there, and everywhere. And it, anyway, so, is there any comments or thoughts on any of that before we call it a night? Okay. I probably will have to read a little bit of the sutras that I only just touched on because I only read 27. So we'll go a little bit on 28 and 29, but then we'll start it on 30 probably next week. Okay? There's class next week, but the week after is not a class.